difficult, 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 Marie. Oh, that's you? good. I'm Katie. <laughs> I like this intro. Yeah. <laughs> who are you? <laughs> uh, welcome to Difficult Women Podcast, where we don't even know who we are. Um, <laughs> I had to have Katie tell me and me her. It's great. <laughs> Hello and welcome, you guys. This, we're just going to cut to it, right? Yeah, Do you have anything else should... you want to say? I mean, this, this, is, a, this is a nice, uh, big, juicy episode. That sounds gross. But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> It's got a lot of wet, good stuff. Wet, sloppy, sloppy, nice yummy. Lovey. <laughs> no, it is actually, we're so, so excited for this episode because we have uh, someone who knows what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Remember how we always are saying, like, we're not doctors, don't listen we, to yeah. us, we have no idea what we're talking about. Well, today we actually do have a doctor on the podcast. It's rare that we have guests, and we're so lucky to have this person. Um, I I would go as far as to say that she's a friend of mine uh, because I just want to be friends with her. But um, <laughs> really, she's just a colleague. Um, I work with her very closely with the Oldest Profession podcast. She's our historian for that podcast that you all know that I produce and edit. Um, she's a lover of all things of history. She's a writer. She's an educator. She holds a PhD in history from Indiana University and a Kentucky aficionado, which I'm very interested in talking about. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Dr. Charlene Fletcher in the house. Woohoo! Thank you for we, having me. I'm excited. Oh, good. Well, we're thrilled to have you today. And we, you know, as the... Um, Let's just say our audience knows Caitlin Bailey because we did have her on a couple weeks ago and she's the host of the Oldest Profession podcast that I'm producing and editing and you are our in-house historian. So my question to you, just starting right off, as a lover of history and an educator, how did you get involved in the Oldest Profession podcast or just in sex uh, worker advocacy also? We'll just start there and then we'll we're going to hop around, folks. So get ready. Um, So my work, I focus on the 19th century U.S. South, and I am very much interested in the stories of everyday Americans, particularly women, black women, white women, what things were like in the South. And I'm not so much interested in the upper middle class. I'm interested in working class people, um, the folks that you don't hear about in your history books, uh, the folks that mm. don't really make it to, you know, all of those dreadful history channel documentaries, just everyday people that lived lives similar to what we are experiencing today. And so a lot of the folks that I tend to study um, have been arrested for various things. Um, some of them were sex workers. Some of them were um, numbers runners, um, really involved in what we call the informal economy. I'm not going to call it illegal because, you know, these are ways that folks could really grasp economic independence or some, some form of it. And I was finishing my dissertation. Well, it was finished. I was um, preparing to defend my dissertation. And a friend of mine sent this announcement, this job posting, um, looking for a consultant 
for the oldest profession podcast. And she was like, this, th- you, you should do this. And I'm looking and I'm like, I'm past the deadline on this, but okay, whatever. I'll send, you know. And so that's how I ended up uh, meeting Caitlin and and working on on the podcast. And it was really of interest to me because the podcast is telling the types of stories that I have been researching for so long. Mm. It's been a fun ride, um, you know, being able to, you know, pair my research with, um, you know, all of this wonderful tech and media, because, you know, it's, that's not that's not my bag. <laughs> <laughs> well, so folks, every month you host a panel. You do the old old pro panel, and you've been interviewing people from all over the country. Um, specifically, you know, uh, I really enjoyed. We did a full episode on Lilith, uh, Victoria Woodhall. You know, um, and you host all of them. And uh, I've just been really, really impressed with the stories that you've been sharing from the past and how how they really do still pertain to day what's going on in today's history and and this is all new to me specifically sex worker advocacy is a new even though we are reformed whores um, our angle is a little bit more of quitting your day jobs to follow your dreams but we do believe that sex work is is work and um, we I just really admire what you do and what Caitlin does Um, so it's great to be part of your team so getting into it too I just really would love to discuss um, kind of your earlier uh, work in criminal justice because you so are you wait so are you from the south are you from Kentucky originally or I am uh, I am a Kentuckian by genetics. My mom, <laughs> my mom um, was born and raised in a little town. Well, she was born in a little town called Hazard, Kentucky, which is in um, southeastern uh, Kentucky in the Appalachian Mountains. She and her brothers and my grandparents moved to Indianapolis in the 1960s, mid 1960s, and you know, been here ever since. So I was born and raised in Indianapolis. But, you know, when you're Southern and you have family that, you know, remain in the South, you tend to get shipped down to the South to hang out with your cousins in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent my summers in Hazard, Kentucky growing up. But I am originally from Indianapolis, um, and I've lived all over. I've lived in D.C. I attended Howard University. Um, I've lived in uh, Louisiana. I've lived in Baltimore uh, and New York City, specifically Mm -hmm. in Brooklyn, um, before Mm -hmm. coming back here. So that's really where I started working in the criminal justice system. Uh, I did a little little bit of it in um, Louisiana and in um, Indianapolis before going to New York. Mm-hmm. And while there, um, I moved to New York and I actually moved to New York to be a police officer, believe it or not. Really? Yes, I, I did. And um, the day that I was supposed to be sworn into the NYPD, um, thank God, this did not pan out the way I envisioned it. Um, I was offered a position to uh, be the project director of a domestic violence initiative in Queens, and I took it. Oh, wow. 
And so from there, I ended up, you know, training law enforcement, training the NYPD on how to um, respond to domestic violence situations and sexual assault cases and things like that um, so that, you know, um, survivors were not re-victimized as they engaged uh, with law enforcement. And so that turned into me um, landing a position where I... Um, directed all criminal justice efforts, specifically uh, prison reentry for mm. an organization called the Doe Fund in New York. And so uh, it was a reentry program that we had sites in, well, it still exists. I'm just not there. Uh, there's sites <laughs> in uh, New York City, Harlem, Brooklyn. There were sites in New Jersey and Philadelphia. Um, and so I went into the prisons teaching, um, working with folks, helping them to return to society and return to their families, rebuild families. And it was probably one of my favorite jobs that I've ever had. Um, and so from there, I started teaching at the City University of New York um, because um you know, a lot of my students came to my classroom, came to the classroom, uh, wanting to be um, correctional officers, parole officers, that sort of thing. Um, you know, district attorneys, a lot of them watched Law and Order. And so they had a very <laughs> televised understanding of the criminal justice system. So I had to bust all that up. But I, I looked at it from the perspective of, you know, I can't control what happens in a police academy or, you know, the Correctional Officer Academy. I'm not going to be your training officer as a rookie, but if I can at least reach you as a student in this classroom to let you know, you know, it's not us versus them. You're working with people. You are mm -hmm. a human and you're working with other humans who have very different um, circumstances, scenarios, and you need to engage anybody that you meet as such, whether, you know, they are battling with substance abuse, whether they are, um, you know, a sex worker trying to make ends meet, um, whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what I took into the classroom. Um, and I left New York and got a PhD. And so that's why we're having this conversation. <laughs> You've done such an amazing job, though, of weaving all of these experiences that you've had in your life together and I'm so impressed with um taking this information and taking your experiences and then being able to highlight them for other people so that we can all know more about these things because we can be you can be so insular right like mm -hmm. in your world and not think about sex workers or think about you know the criminal justice system particularly so to have um i don't know i'm just i'm i'm excited <laughs> i'm excited <laughs> i'm excited that you're that you exist and that you're doing everything that you're doing thank you it's so cool oh my gosh no this is great so in new york when you were doing kind of the re-entry work is that where you started teaching like that's when you started saying oh i want to be an educator um I, I don't know if i looked at it like I want to be an educator. <laughs> I would like to mold the youth. <laughs> no. no, it didn't happen like no. that. Um, no. <laughs> I think with, you know, 
quote unquote teaching, it really started in the prison. Like I, I just, you know, I would go in and we would do reentry classes. And then it turned into me going into places like Arthur Kill, which is now closed. It was a medium security men's facility. Um, I would go to Sing Sing um, and do lifers and long-termers groups and just, you know, enjoy being able to foster conversation. And from there, I went into the classroom at the City University. And then it continued when I came to in, back to Indianapolis um, because I would teach graduate history classes at the Indiana Women's Prison. And it was fantastic. And so it was more, you know, it's not about me teaching. It's, it's to me, learning spaces are two-way streets. You know, people come into the classroom that you expect to learn from the instructor. Absolutely. But I also expect to learn from my students. I I have a Ph.D., but I don't know everything. And so and I say that all the time. And if I don't know and there's something that you want to know, I'll do my best to find the information for you. But just being able to, you know, they learn from me. I learn from them. And so, you know, hear those perspectives about the readings and like current applications. It's just, you know, it it was just such a positive energy and a positive experience in a space that people tend to think of, you know, they think the worst of. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that's just such a common issue that we have in um, our society, obviously, just that people think like, oh, you're a criminal. So you're a bad person. You've done something bad and you deserve to just be in jail. And I don't want to think about it anymore, you know, and how there's so many other levels to like why people end up in jail that have nothing to do with the people themselves. It's sometimes just the institute of the way the jails have been set up and money, you know, for profit and things like that. But then also this idea that, you know, I don't know. I love what you said about just saying like, these are human people <laughs> that, yeah, that need to be treated as such. It's just, and we talk about this on the podcast all the time. It's just like, you need to treat humans like humans. It's, it's just a basic, basic thing. To pivot just a little bit, you have a book that's coming out. Is that right? Yes. I did get to hear this sort of podcast lecture that you did about some of your topics that you're focused on in the book. And you brought up, you used two women in particular that are sort of everyday women, the um, Fanny, Keith Harvey, and uh, Lila White, who are just sort of, for lack of a better word, regular everyday individuals in the, um, the what is it, the golden... The Gilded Age? The Gilded Age. The Gilded Age. Um, can you tell, I was really taken by everything you were saying in that lecture because um, you there were, like Maria was saying earlier, there's so much stuff that happened back then, right back in the past, that is still going on today. And specifically, you mentioned, you talk about... Um, uh, uh, domestic violence. Domestic or, violence. Mm-hmm. Yes, domestic mm-hmm. violence. Um, and that was one of the focuses of your book, right? Domestic violence, right. Would you talk a little bit about like some of the the things that have not changed, mm. you know, and, and things that we think like, oh, it should be different now. And where has it not been different? Absolutely. Um, so the book is entitled Confined Femininity, Race, Gender and Incarceration in Kentucky, 1865 to 1920. And um, I explore um, confinement in 
the late 19th century, early 20th century um, through the lens of the lives of Fanny Keith Harvey and Lila White, who were two African-American women who lived in central Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky, um, during this time period. Fanny was born in 1865, immediately after the Civil War. And Lila was born um, in 1875 in Lexington. Fanny was born in Bourbon County, which is a, a rural county um, outside of, well, she was born in the rural area of the county <laughs> outside of Lexington. And so what my work does is um, it stretches these ideas of confinement. We tend to think of, you hear the word confinement and people tend to think of carceral spaces. They think of prisons, they think of jails. Some people will think of um, mental health institutions, which were called mm-hmm. asylums back in the day. But I expand that and I I look at what I call socially constructed forms of confinement. And mm-hmm. so the home as a site of confinement. And in the 19th century, that may have been domestic labor um, because uh, large numbers of African-Americans, particularly African-American women, um, their economic opportunities were rooted in domestic labor. And that presented a whole host of problems that mimicked enslavement. And so you had a lot of black women who, uh, black men as well, who would find other ways to make money. And for some, that led them to that informal economy that we talked about beforehand. So um, some may have been sex workers. Some may have been numbers runners. Um, there's a fantastic book by a very good friend of mine. Her name is LaShawn Harris. It's called... Um, Psychic sex workers and numbers, number, numbers, runners. <laughs> um, and so she takes a look at this informal economy and what that meant um, for black women's uh, labor, black women's sexuality, black women negotiating and redefining respectability and respectability politics. So it's, it's a fantastic read. I highly suggest that everybody go get it. Um, What's a numbers runner or what a num gambling? Oh, a gambler. Oh, okay. Okay. So, yes. <laughs> I explore the lives of these two women, um, Miss Fanny, and and I always call them Miss Fanny and Miss Lila because they never received the respect that was due to them when they walked the earth. So the least I can do in the 21st century is give that that honor to them. And so Miss Fanny was um, a live-in domestic worker in uh, rural Bourbon County. She was impregnated by uh, a very well-to-do, popular, uh, young, single white man. And she more than likely was probably um, forced out of the county as a result. Black women tended to work on contracts in the 19th century, uh, late, you know, after the Civil War, after emancipation. And um, white folks could, for whatever reason, terminate the contract as they saw fit. Um, they could accuse them of stealing. They could say, you know, your work isn't, you know, what it should be. Um, but black women also resisted. Sometimes they would just quit. They found ways to, you know, actually negotiate their labor uh, and negotiate 
um, the the mm-hmm. value of their labor. But Fanny ended up moving to Lexington and she entered that informal economy. Um, mm. She was, you know, trying to take care of herself and her son, uh, whose name is George or was George. And she was a numbers runner. You know, she was a hustler. She, at one point, there's evidence that she did um, engage in domestic labor inside of brothels because that's, you know, that's the other thing. You know, we tend to think everybody that worked in uh, a brothel was a sex worker. That's not necessarily the case. Um, Fanny did engage in in sex work later on down the line. Um, But the other woman, uh, Lila, Lila White was um, 16 years old when she poisoned her family with arsenic. And um, that was the result of years of being abused physically and psychologically by her father and stepmother. And she just got tired of it. And so she too was a domestic worker, but did not live in her employer's home. Her employer was actually the county comptroller. And so mm-hmm. while she was working there, she learned to read, she learned to write. Um, and she would work late nights just mm-hmm. staying there so that she could avoid the abuse in her home. Oh and gosh. so I call these, um, you know, these types of mechanisms, that is the socially constructed form of confinement. This house this home that should be this nurturing place. And, you know, for my folks who are so, you know, enraptured by the Kentucky Derby, you know, every year it starts with the old song, my old Kentucky home, but everybody's home wasn't this place of peace and and comfort. And so um, for some, it was a form of confinement and they sought ways to um, relieve themselves of that confinement Mm -hmm. or to just simply have a respite um in the in in the midst of this confinement even if it meant going from one confining space to another and so not much has changed i mean there have been you know some snippets of progress we do have the violence against women act which you know republicans didn't really want to do anything with when it expired under the previous administration um you do have the advent of safe houses and domestic violence programming and and all of these things. But that doesn't mean that abuse has gone anywhere. Um, I mean, marital rape wasn't a a crime uh, until the 1970s. And so what I hope that my work does is that folks can see uh, parallels to the lives Mm -hmm. that that these women and other women uh, lived in the 19th century, early early 20th century, and then compare them to what's happening today. There are people who are still looking for a respite in confinement. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how many of us, you know, get frustrated at home and then you may have stayed late at work? Mm-hmm. You know, folks who have done that before. That's, you know, one confining space to another. And it's not so much that you are in search of freedom. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just a respite. Yeah, that's such an interesting uh just and, and change of pace is not the right <laughs> respite is the, the right word, but um that we, you know, <laughs> lots of 
people can find themselves in those situations. And, and, and honestly, at all, it makes me think too about like, um, even at all economic levels, because if you're facing abuse at home and you're a billionaire, you know, it's not, that's not great either, you know, and then we don't have a lot of, um, that's the one time you hear me defend a billionaire, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> But no, it's fascinating. I, did you, as you were doing your research and things, were you surprised to see things basically that's like, oh, this sounds like a familiar story. You know, if you took mm. that story out of context, very easily someone could think, oh, she's just talking about somebody from last week or something. Did that surprise you or was that sort of not surprising? No, it wasn't surprising. And I think yeah. the only reason why it wasn't um, is simply because I have worked with survivors for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself am a survivor, am a survivor, and so it wasn't so much surprising as it was disheartening, mm-hmm. and the ways in which these women are demonized uh, mm-hmm. by newspapers, right. um, you know, just really lost to history, forgotten, you know, never spoken of. Um, one because of their race. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, too, because um, they were not viewed as respectable. They were not viewed as, um, you know, feminine or worthy, um, you know, criminal, just somebody to be written off. And we do that every day. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's the thing that I'm learning the most um, because I am not a history buff. I can I, I love history and I but I I. Surprise, surprise. I smoke a lot of pot and it's hard for me to remember things sometimes. <laughs> Full disclosure. But um, but what I've learned from the old pro podcast is just, oh shit, what was I going to say now? <laughs> that's, the, that's the pot coming back that's to get the you. Pot. <laughs> no, but, but, uh, no, but learning specifically about, um, you know, Anthony Comstock. I'd never oh. heard of Anthony Comstock before and the Comstock laws, but it's it's the people who are like the gatekeepers, the people that that are the ones demonizing, are the ones shaming, are the ones saying, you know, you are a criminal. And I think that that's like even the Anthony Comstock laws of what was it? 18. Uh, what are the date? 1870. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 1873. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, but but how that still is like, I mean, especially I felt like that was happening in the last administration with just like all the this crazy laws and the control of women's bodies and and how it's 2021 and it's nothing has ha, nothing has changed or so when you look at i mean we could do a whole separate episode on the last administration but when you look at <laughs> you look at the 19th century um usually in newspapers um you'll see a, a column for the police the police blotter or it might, you know, just tell you who was arrested or who's up for arraignment in circuit court or, you know, whatever it may be called in that particular um, municipality. Um, and you'll see tons of names of, of women who've been arrested for prostitution. But what you don't see are the men who were soliciting them. Right. Their names are never there. Um, They are, you know, regularly demonized. She's prostitute. She's this, she's that, blah, blah, blah. But you do not see these men named. And, you know, this person solicited this person on this corner of or this brothel Mm -hmm. or, you know, 
that's not there. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think you see similar things to in the 21st century in the last administration. There was so many negative things said about Stormy Daniels. So many negative things, you know, well, how can we trust what she says? Because she's a sex worker. Mm-hmm. Even though you heard this this individual mm-hmm. say, you know, grab him by the pussy, but we're just mm-hmm. going to ignore all right. that, mm-hmm. you know. And so um, that that stigma that comes with sex work, that stigma that comes with, um, you know, um, a, a, a woman's pursuit of economic independence or what have mm-hmm. you, or just, you know, mm-hmm. a woman standing up for herself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that continues to be demonized in a whole host of contexts. Yeah. Well, that's so fascinating to me that that that's a very common uh, historical thing that comes back is that anytime a woman tries to take any kind of fin- financial independence, set herself up in any way, whether it be through prostitution or we were talking about the the word spinsters a couple episodes ago, where I guess that word comes from women that were spinning and were able to then make enough money that they didn't have to get married. And now we've taken that word mm-hmm. and turned it into something mm-hmm. negative, right? And that's a, like a much lighter version of how we've demonized sex work and prostitutes specifically, not even just the sex work, but like, but the women, it's the women's fault. And I, um, it makes, it infuriates me. <laughs> and I don't know, as we're talking about this, I, I mean, I'm getting frustrated thinking some of these things I think of as like modern problems, but maybe just because I don't think about the, you know, in the past, everything feels like glossed over and the way we teach, like you're saying, the way we teach history tends to be just sort of this, you know, fuzzy version of what the, what actually went down. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I guess part of, I'm, I'm maybe answering my own question a little bit, but like, do you have ideas of what we can do? I mean, part of it is educating people about what the reality of these situations are, but are there other steps that you have, you know, thoughts about in terms of changing some of these? I mean, there's so many things. <laughs> <laughs> How do you make the world a better place, doctor? Well... <laughs> In terms of education, I think one of the key things is being, specifically in America, there has to be a reckoning. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. have to be honest with, um, with Americans have to be honest with themselves about the history of this mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, American exceptionalism um America is not exceptional, mm-hmm. except for in, you know, yeah. in the myths mm-hmm. that it tells itself. But I think that that's, that's the first step. And I don't think we're anywhere near right. that. And yeah. I think that you see that, um, you know, a couple of years ago with the advent of the 1619 mm-hmm. project and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. all of the pushback right. that mm-hmm. that received, mm-hmm. um, and then in response, the previous administration developed this 1776 yeah. madness. And when yeah. you read it, it, it is it's utter <laughs> bullshit. Uh, um, and it pushes that narrative that, you know, uh, slavery happened, you know, uh, communism is, you know, evil or socialism is what we need to be concerned mm-hmm. about. That sort of thing. When, you know, you continue to push this America the mm-hmm. Great um, this, you know, this great man narrative, you know, George Washington and the founders fought for our freedoms. Mm, yeah, no, that's not how mm-hmm. this worked. 
But the more that we continue to avoid having these very real conversations, it's hard to move forward with any of that. Um, Racism, uh, misogyny, uh, massage noir, you know, all of this negativity specifically toward black Mm -hmm. women, it is embedded in the fibers of what is America. Mm -hmm. And we have to deal with that. And we don't. So, you know, I mean, slavery is 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 one thing that needs to be dealt with. Um, the genocide of Native Americans is another thing. You know, genocide of First Nations needs to be addressed. Um, and and a good segment of Americans just do not want to have this conversation. Um, we just witnessed Confederate flag toting individuals storm the Capitol. And for what was it? Three hours? They just got in there. You know what I'm saying? But when black people came, you know, to to literally protest, we, we're not here to shoot you. We want you to right. stop shooting mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. That's it. We are not here to fight you. We are not here to shoot you. None of that. Stop killing mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. And so you see this, you know, people in SWAT gear and, you know, military presence and all this other stuff. But when these idiots with these Confederate flags come up in the Capitol, can't, you know, there's nobody to be found. And so that is a direct result of these myths, you know, this whole notion of the lost cause. Stop teaching people Mm -hmm. this mess. Mm -hmm. You know, well, the Civil War was fought over states' rights. Yeah, the states' right to have slavery. Yes. Right, slavery right. was the problem. So when right. you keep feeding these false, you know, these false narratives, you can't expect to have an open and genuine conversation. But even if you do, it's a direct challenge to white supremacy. Yeah. And that's what this is rooted yeah. in. And it's frustrating, too, because even it's so I'm thinking of just like now, just like a Rolodex of white friends and family that some of which consider themselves kind of liberal, right? But the minute that they're challenged on this idea of white supremacy, first of all, the word, I think the term scares them, even though that is exactly what it is. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that I, it's, it's, it is, it feels like such a slow going thing to try to change everybody's mind or have them open their minds a little more and more but you have these liberal people that say like well I'm not racist or oh I'm not well it's not that much or it's not whatever and because we are we have been brainwashed I mean there has been a full brainwashing on our end too and um I I don't know I'm hoping that everyone listening right now if you're a white person are you, are you, you know, let me ask you, listener, are you, are you opening your mind every day a little bit more to these, the truths that we have not been um, exposed to, <laughs> you know, or, or that we're, there were people are trying to expose us to, but we're not willing to listen to. Um, and that's the key. Um, you know, being exposed is one thing, but that acceptance and that openness, it, it's, it's going to challenge um, that privilege. Um, And, you know, really one of the things that's at the root of this is fear. What are you afraid of? Is it a fear of losing this, you know, this power and control? Um, You know, this whole idea of the quote unquote browning of America, whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. 
is that what the, you're, you know, is that what you're afraid of? You're afraid of losing control. You're afraid of losing that minor, that, excuse me, majority. Because fear can cause people to do very interesting things. So, yeah, absolutely. It's one thing to be exposed. I mean, it's another to be accepting or open to what you're being exposed to. The other thing is, and I'll say this for the white folks who are listening, it's not the job of Black folks, Latinx folks, First Nation folks to teach you about your racism. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Right. It's not. No, you're right. Right. That's not that's not our job. And, you know, it sounds like, like, duh. But there are so many times where you have black and brown people who are asked to um, engage in this labor, like teach us what we're doing wrong. How do you not know that, especially when right. you are not open to even having the conversations like we're we're not going to sugarcoat this. Yeah. Yeah. My one of my best friends, she's in corporate. She works at a uh, I guess she's a executive administrator. She's black and she they have like nominated her in her fucking office mm-hmm. to educate them. And she was like, that's not my job. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But it is Mm-mm. it is just endless, though. Mm hmm. And it's but but honestly, to be completely honest, that that I don't know if like because of last year and the, you know, Black Lives Matter and all the protests and and we had so many conversations about everything going on, defund the police. And when she told me that her company of all of mostly all white people were coming to her to educate them, I. I could not and believe these, that that was happening. And these people think that that's a step. They think that they're doing that, like, you know, as opposed to like, you can Google it. Like you can, there's so much information available to you. But, th- but that's what, that's what I think what, um, what we're talking about with like the people that stormed the Capitol. It's like, they're angry because their America that they've been promised and, and they, you know, they that they think is great and that has been built by white people for white people and then all of a sudden they're feeling threatened and so they feel as though they have their right to storm the capital with guns that's that's the telling that's it right there is that the, this country is not equal this is not an you know it is not built for everyone it is built for one color mm-hmm. it's and um yeah. It's also interesting that just coming back to like history and then using history as a comparison then to like open our eyes to what's happening now and that things haven't changed that much, right? I rewatched Selma the other day just because I was mm. watching the actually was watching it for the cinematography and then as I was watching <laughs> it when it first came out, it hit me hard and I was like, oh my gosh, this story is ama- whatever you know, it's amazing and it's terrifying and upsetting. But there because well, it was like 2012 or 13 or something when it came out, there was still in my brain was like, oh, that was the past though. That was the past. And going what we've been, especially what I've seen personally since with the Capitol and everything and prior to that with you know, since the pandemic, I mean, all of it in the last seven, yeah, all of it in the last, you know, well, all of it. Um, rewatching that movie, I was like, oh, this could have been made. This could be about yesterday. The same mm. kinds of violence against mm. black people, the same kinds of uh, hate. It's you saw it in the Capitol on TV. In front of everybody. So it just, how can we not, how can you see that and then think that those things are in the past? 
They're mm-hmm. just not. It goes back to, um, you know, what we talked about just a few minutes ago, the way people res- are, are taught history, the way people, the way these narratives persist mm-hmm. in, in our school curriculums, uh, in American mm-hmm. culture, just generally, you can't expect for a group of people to truly believe that they lost an election mm-hmm. when they still can't grapple with the fact that they lost the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you have been fed a particular narrative. And, it, and it's interesting because, you know, at the close of the Civil War, people weren't, you know, excited about the Confederacy. <laughs> it's just, mm-hmm. you lost, you know. Um, it was more of an embarrassment than anything else. But when you have um the when world war 1 comes and you know the turn of the century comes um that guild that that period that that i focus on that gilded age that progressive era you really see these narratives of the quote unquote lost cause and this romanticized civil war and you know we've had these conversations um in the past few years about confederate monuments those were mm-hmm. not built in 1866. They were mm-hmm. built at the turn of the century. And it reinforced not only, um, you know, that lost cause narrative, but it reinforced white supremacy and that narrative of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you celebrate these Confederate generals. There's these, you know, the statues for these folks. And then, I mean, but it's also... You, these things were erected at the same time that Woodrow Wilson was president and he right. screened birth of a nation in the White House. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, yeah. a great whatever he said. Um, I can't give you the exact quote, but he praised it as, you know, um, quality cinema and all this other stuff. And this is in the White House. And so you have these narratives that are constructed. Um, you know, slavery was um you know, uh, uh, this paternalistic benefit to those who were enslaved, that, that kind of, that kind of narrative um, is, this is where this happens. And Mm -hmm. so when people embrace this, this stuff, it doesn't go away just because you have a civil rights act of 1964 or, Mm -hmm. you know, the women, uh, you know, violence against women's act, it doesn't go away because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, certain things are just, you know, um, embedded. And that's what this is. And so when you mm-hmm. see these folks bringing a Confederate flag into the United States Capitol, because they cannot believe that they lost an election, you, it's not surprising when you um, have gone a hundred years with this um, false narrative and this and this um, this reverence for you know white supremacy and and the Confederacy and all of those things that they stood for. So yeah, we did an episode on the daughters of the Confederacy a couple <laughs> months ago. Oh my god, that was edu- that was highly educational. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I bet unbelievable. <laughs> And, you know, I remember, though, I mean, there's so so I grew up in Nashville and I just remember like the romanticizing of the Civil War, going to plantations and taking tours and the the language that they would use was just like they were seduced. They were. No, it was like, oh, they were raped. They were raped. They were raped. And 
And we're children, and this is not too long ago. Yes. Right. right. I mean, in Nashville, you you know, no disrespect to Nashville. I got family. <laughs> I know you can shit on it. <laughs> I mean, um, what's that man's name? Andrew Jackson, the Hermitage. Oh, mm. yes, the Hermitage. I mean, I I had a conversation, or I don't, I don't remember where it was, but I had a conversation, maybe it was a workshop or something, and uh, we were talking about the ways in which uh, he is just deified at the Hermitage. And, oh, well, his son, um, you know, he, he couldn't have been racist because he, he adopted this, na- this native. Mm. He stole that boy. Oh, God. <laughs> like, right. what are you talking about? Right. No, we went to the Hermitage once a year. That was like the field trip that you would go to. And then you'd be like, oh, my gosh, this is so beautiful. Mm-mm. What a wonderful place to live in harmony with all, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you go to mm-hmm. having lived and worked in Louisiana and, and, you know, just various places in the South. Um, I have uh, visited a number of plantations. And, you know, mm-hmm. some people are just like, why, why, how can you, how can you stand it? And so my thing is, <clears throat> first I'll say this, and this is another plug, shameless plug, for the Whitney Plantation, which is on the the, the River Road in, in Louisiana. It's about 30 minutes outside of New Orleans. If you just have to go to a plantation, that should be the one because it centers its entire focus on the experiences of the enslaved. You know, you go into the quote unquote big house and it's literally, yeah, they bought this property. This happened. This man mm-hmm. lived here, but the enslaved did this in this house mm-hmm. uh, and this. And th- it, it's, it focuses on the people um, who are consistently erased from that narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there's other, you know, plantation um, museum. People get married on plantations and that's mm-hmm. an entirely different conversation. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's this gone with the wind, romanticized bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, you can go on a plantation tour and walk away knowing more about the wallpaper Mm-hmm. Right. then you will you know the lives of the enslaved people who were held captive on the land um you know why is you know the 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 artist for this particular portrait chose this taupe oil-based paint you know all that before you leave mm-hmm. but don't know anything about um the enslaved bodies that were held captive and that i mean the, and that feeds into that um, that same narrative. Mm-hmm. My friend got to go to the opening. I, I want to say it's in Birmingham. I always get this wrong when I talk about it, but it's the memorial. The lynching memorial. The lynching memorial. Is that the only memorial to the enslaved? That to- is the only memorial for those who have been lynched. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, post-slavery, right? That's not even... Yes. Uh, what we know as lynching, yes, is is after um, emancipation. Um, lynching is often... It's often discussed in gendered terms. Um, we tend to um, think of it 
as, you know, race-based violence towards Black men. And it definitely is the case. But Black women were also um, victims of lynching. Um, but mm-hmm. you see this rise in, in racial violence um, after the Civil War because, of course, Black people are trying to build their own lives. Right. And that becomes mm-hmm. an issue for white folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you look at the Tulsa massacre that folks are mm-hmm. talking about, have been, have been talking about, um, um, in recent months where, you know, it was called Black Wall Street. Black people were doing their thing in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and, and it was destroyed. People were killed. But you also see this later in history. I mean, Tulsa was in 1921, but in 1919, you have the Red Summer. Um, and it's called the Red Summer because that's, you know, because of all of the blood that was shed, all of the bodies, the body count. Uh, there were at least 26, quote unquote, race riots around the country. And what you had was so this is, you know, the end of World War One and you have black soldiers who went abroad to fight in World War One, quote unquote, fighting for democracy, but also engaging in military service um, as a show of, you know, deserving citizenship. If I'm Mm -hmm. putting my life on the line, how dare you treat me as a second class citizen? So now you have these folks who are coming home and when they're coming home, they are coming home to even more rampant um, um, racist violence. Um, And so there were scores of lynchings in that period um, even in the late 19th century, there's scores of lynchings. You all, you know, you hear about these things, of course, with um, the civil rights movement, uh, Emmett Till, um, the three civil rights workers that were murdered in Mississippi, um, you know, the violence against freedom riders, um, um, the, the murder of Fred Hampton in 1969, I think. Um, he was murdered outright by the Chicago police and, you know, yeah, we did it, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so we tend to think of lynching as, you know, these hangings or what have you, but it's literally racial, uh, racially based murder is what it is. However, it comes. Fred Hampton was shot to death in his bed. He was sleeping and they stormed into his apartment in Chicago and they murdered him. Lynching. Um, you know, you can even say the same for in the 21st century, George Floyd. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. a lynching. Mm-hmm. Trayvon Martin, that was a lynching. Mm-hmm. Tamir Rice, 12 years old, playing with a little toy gun in the park. Yeah. Talking about there's a black man. He's 12. Right, mm-hmm. right. But when Kyle Rittenhouse likes to go up mm. to uh, Wisconsin and his mama drops him off and he starts shooting folks, you, mm-hmm. come on, not you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but the the lynching memorial is, I think, the first and the largest of its kind in the United States. And it's interesting that there were um, there's been several. Uh, attempts to make lynching a federal hate crime. Um, Mm -hmm. Even in the 20s, the NAACP and um, the Dyer anti-lynching bill. I'll get back to you on the years for that. 
so there have been all of these, there have been numerous attempts in American history to make lynching a federal crime. Never happened until, what, last year? Isn't it crazy how some of these things that just should be so... They seem so obvious, right? <laughs> that they just, you can't, yeah. and it's, what is it, the ERA too, the uh, Equal Rights Amendment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, how how are we not, we still haven't done that? We haven't, oh, and, then, and there's a laundry list of things. Oh, yes. But, um, you know, that's something worth uh, ruminating on. <laughs> They're listening. Um, yeah, I just, it blows your mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, are you hope hopeful for the future? Well, I mean, sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about lynching and we're talking about, you know, things that um, it was last year that Congress made lynching a federal crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I think about that, Emmett Till was lynched Mm -hmm. and it took 65 years for Congress to make this a federal crime in 2020. But what does it mean if George Floyd is, you know, killed in the same, is murdered in the same year? Mm -hmm. Um, Breonna Taylor, she was lynched. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nobody's in jail. Mm-hmm. Nobody's in prison. You get fired. So what? Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, Congress finally did something right. But what does that mean when when there's still racial violence? What does that mean when Confederate sympathizers are allowed to just, you know, walk into the U.S. Capitol? Yeah. What what is what does that mean? You know, I guess being a historian kind of crushes my optimism sometimes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I can see why. Well, I remember a couple months ago when we were on a call and I was like, has have you seen this in history before? Is is this similar to like the French Revolution and you were like, no nah, bitch. <laughs> 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 no, <Nah>, this is <laughs> this is all. <laughs> it's similar to a lot of different things, but nothing like truly comparative yes it's similar to a lot of different things and so it it's it's annoying when you know i go on social media and i see all these posts that say this is not america the hell it ain't yeah (laughs) what do you think what what do you think has been happening you know um and so yeah it's the previous administration did you see it coming or did I see it coming? Do other historians see it coming? Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it's comparable to like a big cluster of different moments in history. You know, it, it, and, and there were some things that were just like, like really, <laughs> like really. <laughs> right. Um, but it's not, su- it's not surprising. None of this mm-hmm. is surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sobering, it's angering, you know, um, but it's a surprise, not from the perspective of a person of color. Right. And what do you tell your daughter 
Oh boy. That may be another podcast episode, but sometimes I don't I don't know. I mean, I remember when all of you know, all of the news coverage of um George Floyd and the um the protests in the wake of his murder. I remember my my daughter looking at the news. Um she was looking at CNN and I didn't say anything. She just sat there and then she, you know, turned around and she looked at me and she said, mommy, why do they kill us? Mm. And I didn't have an answer for that. Mm-hmm. You know, what, why do they kill us? Why do they want to kill us? Um, I don't know how to answer that. Um, and then, you know, I mean, I'm a historian, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> she she watches the news and then you know they learn about Dr. King and stuff like that in school or whatever and you know my child is is rather bright and so you know it seems like they've wanted to kill us for a long time mm-hmm. and and this you know this is coming from a child mm-hmm. um and then just you know even with the kids that are at the border the kids in cages at the border. Um, I, I, when she asked me about that, I mean, the only thing that I could, you know, well, why do they, why, why do they do, but it's been done. You know, they used to tear away black children from their mothers and put them on an auction block. Mm-hmm. This is not new. Mm-hmm. They put them in cages, slave pens. It's not new. Um, mm-hmm. But how do you explain that to a child? Um, and so I just I just tell her, I tell her the truth. Because um, I'm not going to be, um, you know, one of those folks who continue to spin that false narrative. This is what this is. Mm-hmm. And I, so you saying that, that... That's what I've been thinking about for a lot of this episode is we try to give our listeners active things to do to to make the world a better place to do to be proactive in any way they can. And I think one small but I think imperative step that from what I'm gathering from this conversation, too, is one thing you can do today. You could do it and then also do it tomorrow and then do it the next day is to relearn your history, to accept that a lot of what you've been taught is not accurate. Uh, make an effort. Don't just ask your friends, hey, tell me how to tell me what this is about. No, look it up yourself. Find the real answers. Find the truth. Be open to the truth. When you have that feeling inside of you that's like, oh, I don't like the way that makes me feel. Don't close the book. Keep reading and say, but this is what it really is. And don't sugarcoat these stories and you know and then once you're able to sort of absorb some of this and understand that we've been fed lies for our whole lives tell other people you know Mm -hmm. when somebody tries to be combative with you now you can be in a position and say actually I've researched this and uh this is what really happened Mm -hmm. and you're gonna get pushed back from those people too but we just have to keep pushing that otherwise it's like if we just sit around being like well that's too bad that that happened then we're, then we're, this is where we'll, we'll always will be. We will mm-hmm. always be in this place. And I, do, I don't know about y'all, but I don't want to be here anymore. I want to move forward. I want to 
I want these things to get better, not to stay the same. Absolutely. But I mean, also, I would say in learning that history, um, it's important to check your privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, prime example, like, you know, you just asked me, how do you explain this to your daughter? Black parents have to have conversations with their children at very early ages that white parents do not have to have if they ever have them at all, you know, Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. and that that in and of itself is is, you know, indicative of that privilege. Um, If you don't have those experiences, you know, you don't because of, you know, systemic racism. Um, but you know, that, that seems to be, um, one of the difficulties is folks, you know, get all sensitive. Oh, I don't like the term white privilege. Well, mm-hmm. right. You know, yeah. so yeah. Well, Dr. Fletcher, this has been unbelievable. You are just such a gift you really are. You're such a, a wonderful teacher, educator. I would love to take your class. Join us. <laughs> Yes. And everybody um, buy Dr. Fletcher's book. Yeah, <laughs> when's the book it? coming out? So it's not out yet. It's under review with um, <laughs> one of the, you know, super, super cool academic presses. Um, mm. But as soon as it does come out, I'll let you know. Yes, yes we will spread we'll the word. <laughs> and how can people find you? Because I know you're active on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I'm on the tweeters and <laughs> my Twitter handle is a uh, little at sign, uh, Ochosi daughter, O-C-H-O-S-I daughter. Um, I'm on the Instagrams, um, <laughs> Dr. C.J. Fletcher. And then I have a website, CharleneJFletcher.com. Yes. And you have a, a, a lecture coming up March 5th. I saw. Possibly? Yes, for the Kentucky Historical Society. Yes. So, so I cool. will be talking about Miss Fanny and Miss Lila in depth and, and race and gender in Gilded Age, Kentucky. Um, so, yeah. And then we have an old pro panel on February 24th that you're hosting about Margot St. James, I believe. Mark, February I think that's right. Is it the 24th? Yeah. yeah. yeah at the end of the month. At the end. Well, yeah. <laughs> the like, old, oh, like, am I doing that? <laughs> <laughs> but those are my favorite. And um, and I edit those and I just love them. I love listening to you. You're so great. You're so, so talented and, and very, very smart. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it really has been a real pleasure getting to know you. So um, I feel very, very, very lucky to work with you. So. Same here. I think you guys are awesome. And I think your podcast is absolutely amazing. I've been listening to a few episodes this week. Oh, that's so nice. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And just for joining us. It's just so nice to um, have someone who knows what they're talking about on the show. <laughs> <laughs> us when we're just, we have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> dates. What's that? Actual, yeah, factual yeah. dates. That's Facts, great. Uh, but again, thank you so much. And everybody, please go check out her website and, and follow follow along. Yay!